visiting the History of Advertising Trust. Hidden deep in the Waveney Valley on the Norfolk-Suffolk border is a multi-layered experience. There's the recent adverts you'll remember from TV, plus the ad breaks of your childhood. In my case, the Smash Aliens or the Oxo family. It's also like the scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where treasure after treasure is shown to be kept in pretty nondescript boxes. But to be sure, they are most assuredly not lost, and any dodgy symbology has more to do with things like tobacco. If you're listening to the omnibus edition of Eastern Promise, then prepare yourself for a whistle-stop tour of the Trust's greatest hits, as well as my chat with John Gordon Saker, genial overseer of this hoard of pure gold. However, also available on the podcast feed is my tour in full, where Deputy Director Alistair Moyer takes me deep into the Trust's catacombs to share its innermost secrets, plus a few treats along the way. Well, I am standing in the History of Advertising Trust in Ravningham, not far from the Norfolk Suffolk border, and I'm surrounded by, if you're the same kind of vintage as I am, reminders of fantastic advertising campaigns. You've got the Smash, got the Smash Robots in front of me, uh, Mr Shifter of the PG Tips, there's a very good reason why they're not doing that anymore. Um, and uh, the, the Hovis lad, he would have great there, my dad. <laughs> and uh, all manner of fantastic adverts from recent times. We've got the meerkat around us. I've also got with me Alistair Moyer of the History of Advertising Trust, yep. who is the man, who's <laughs> the, te- the technical whiz, who keeps this fantastic collection in pristine condition for future generations. Alistair, welcome. Eastern Promise, and thank you for inviting us here. Well, thank you for coming, Mike. Um, so we're going to take you on the tour. So first of all, we're starting off in our kind of education area. Um, we're an educational charity. Uh, so HAT was set up in the 1970s, 1976, um, by luminaries in the advertising industry to um, preserve uh, advertising heritage and make it available for study and research. Um, we started off in London at the Advertising Association offices in the 1970s and then moved gradually became far too big for the one office that we had there um, so then we moved out to Butler's Wharf in the 1980s uh, again to larger premises um, and then as the rents uh, in London <laughs> and the um, the amount of material that we had skyrocketed uh, skyrocketed at the same time we uh, our chief executive at the time was looking for um, somewhere cheaper to be able to uh, lodge all of the uh, accumulated material of at the industry's heritage um, and uh, at the time he happened to live in Beckles um, and right. he was going in on the train um, every day to London and uh, he was looking looked around the area and found uh, these essentially cow barns uh, converted cow barns at the Raveningham estate and they were, had been done up and being rented out as uh, business space mm-hmm. um, and he found several of these barns would uh, do to accommodate all of the the heritage that he'd accumulated in the uh, in the collection um, and so uh, moved everything out here in 1990 um, and uh, this is where we are today um, we've doubled and tripled in size um, since then um, to around about 8,000 square feet um, and uh, there's about 615 cubic meters of material um, here, which is uh, how it, if you can imagine the, the kind of shelves, uh, roller racking shelves, it's all stored on, on that sort of thing. Yeah. And now, of course, we've also got kind of digital material coming in as well. So we have to have a, a digital archive here as well. 
we're looking at T.B. Brown's 1903 directory, yeah. looking like he's in pride of place on a on a on a, on a cushion. That's right. We've desk. just just moved into our um, research research area, and uh, there's a, a lot of our reference libraries here. We've got about six thousand publications in and around the subjects of advertising, marketing, PR, uh, branding. Uh, various trade journals and um, also awards books and that sort of thing as well. Um, T.B. Brown's uh, directory, which I've just got out for you here, is um, it's uh, was created by an advertising agency called T.B. Brown. Um, we have their direct directories from the 1880s uh, right through to kind of the 1930s. Um, and um, they're essentially a rate card. It shows you how much it costs to advertise in particular magazines and newspapers. Right. Um, at the time. So this is 1903. Um, T.B. Brown, um, as an agency, uh, sold this to brands and uh, other agencies so that they could see how much it was to advertise. Mm. Um, but they also um, gave a good summary of their own agency at the beginning, probably to help to try and get some of the brands to come and advertise, use yeah. them for their advertising because they were so good. So, for example, if we have a, a, a quick look here, um, we can see... Um, we've got the Times newspaper here. Yes. Um, weekly edition. Weekly edition. Um, but then also, you can see here to advertise on the front page of the Times, the entire page is fifty-five pounds in nineteen oh three. I dread to think. What yeah. That is so um, I mean, in today's money, um, it's about two about ten thousand pounds, something like that. But it would be. It's probably. Oh, that is. Probably millions now. Yes, <laughs> that's it would be absolutely um, incredible. Um, so there you can see an example of um, some of the, um, the the way that it was used in terms of trying to find out um, how much it was to advertise in the, the different publications. I'll just show you one here as well. The Eastern Daily Press. You can the see Eastern there. Daily Press. Nineteen oh three. Head uh, office Norwich. That's it. And you can see to advertise in the Eastern Daily Press, it was six shillings per inch. Six shillings per inch. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Wow. So uh, that's how the, the book was kind of used. You could go through, and it's literally every um, publication that you could think that would hold advertising mm -hmm. is, is in there. Um, and um, as I said, the agency also liked to try and get people to use them as a company. Um, so they would put examples of their own advertising in there. So you can see some of these uh, kind of lovely ads Old for... Beach. Yep, Old Bleach, uh, Cadbury's Cocoa. No connection there. Um, yeah, <laughs> Dewar's whiskey. Um, you know various other birds custard, for example. Um, Cabri's cocoa makes strong men stronger. Yeah, there you go. Um, but the the best thing for us is that um, it wasn't just um, they don't just show their own ads. They actually show images um, of their offices as well. So, for example, you can see here T B Brown's offices in Queen Victoria Street, just on this fold out here. Oh wow. Um, and then even, even better um, in terms of the uh, history of the industry, they do internal images. So you can see the various departments oh uh, that were within the agency. You see this lovely photographic studio here with these huge kind of uh, cameras uh, for, for taking photographs. Um, and various <laughs> kind of other departments across, across the um, uh, across the, the, their offices, um, but as you can see um, from most of these images, you have to have a moustache to work you in do. the advertising you industry do. in 1903. Um, but a really interesting scene, as I said, we've got them over kind of a 50-year period, so we can see the real, you know, visual um, and creative development of um, of a of an agency um, over that period. So um, they're they're really kind of useful for us to have 
um, in the collections. I'm just trying to think where that build the building. Um, there's a picture of the Eastern Daily Press office. Oh, yes. I was trying to think. Yeah, where is that? that, that yeah, no, I, I'm not sure. It still <laughs> exist. <laughs> yeah. One of the kind of hidden costs in terms of the archiving that we do is the machinery, the the vintage machinery that we have to maintain yes. in order to be able to access all of the old formats uh, that we get. Uh, so, for example, here you've got a. Umatic um, tape. Yes. Um, uh -huh. And this was real kind of industry standard um, for many years, up until the 90s, probably 1990s. And uh, you then move on to things like beaters and digi beaters and that sort of thing. Indeed. But we've got so many kind of umatics, and uh, that means we have to maintain a umatic machine to be able to. It, that no. no one makes anymore to be able to access them. So there's a kind of real hidden cost because the people to maintain this type of uh, machinery are few and far between now. Yes. So they can pretty much charge what they like. Um, so it's quite difficult to uh, to be able to find the right person to be able to. Uh, um, you know, maintain it for you. Quite often, we have we end up going to, having to take them to London or be a, a contact of the BFI, um, or sometimes the East Anglian Film Archive just up the road. Ah, they yes. have some really good contacts. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it's uh, you know th there are p some people still around, but it's it's getting really much much more difficult to find people to uh, to maintain them. I mean, they don't make VHS players anymore. You know, and we we do have a lot of material on VHS and. Mm. Uh, to be able to to kind of maintain those is uh, is is you know also a priority because we still need to be able to access all of these old formats. And and you can't I suppose ever guarantee that a VHS tape won't. You know you think yeah. one day we've got them all we've done every VHS yeah. tape. Oh no, yeah. hang on. No, exactly, exactly. Quick, and you'll get, it out get the collections <laughs> coming in all the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we can't we can't get rid of any of this uh, any of this machinery. So we effectively maintain a museum of of of, of old machinery as well. So, you know, it's it, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, we, we do tour, tours for universities and every year I have to ask, uh, do, do you know what a VHS was? <laughs> and, uh, and many of them said, oh, well, I saw one in a museum once, you know, and it's kind of oh, that God. kind of... Yeah, <laughs> you makes, I mean, you makes, remember you getting your first yeah, one. Yeah, it makes you feel really old. But uh, no, it's, um, you know, it's, it's really vital um, to be able to, to do that. And, you know, we have to be able to access these, these formats to, to be able to digitise them and, and make them available. Okay, so we're now moving behind the Ooh. scenes. Uh, you'll feel it's slightly a, cooler in here. A discernible change in temperature. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is Archive One, which is uh, essentially our uh, collection reception area. So this is where material comes when we initially get it, so that we can look over it and make sure that there aren't any kind of um, bugs or moulds growing mm. um, on the collections. And then we repackage um, the items into acid-free materials, acid-free uh, boxes, folders, tissue paper, and uh, and seacol as well for for things that that it, like uh, photographs and that sort of thing. Seacol um, is like a polyester-based mm. type of plastic that allows you to, um, to to be able to see the item um, and handle it a, a bit easier, whilst also allowing the item to breathe. So it allows it to to preserve it um, a lot longer. Doesn't and there's no kind of build-up of um, of moisture or anything from the mm. from the paper itself. Yeah. So I mentioned um, earlier the uh, earliest items that we hold. This this is uh, the London Gazette, which is the earliest one, um, eighteen uh, sorry sixteen eighty, um, and on the back you can see the advertisements uh, for the bookseller, or or, or is it printed here a bookfeller? Bookfeller, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
there is there's a crude joke but in involved here but the vicar of dibley already did that one yes so I'm yes not gonna, i'm not gonna repeat it I'm not gonna... oh wow yeah and then the observator from 1684 and uh, again on the back you can see the advertisement for um essentially fire insurance the friend, uh, yes do you know when you mentioned insurance i thought i bet it's yeah. fire insurance yeah yeah yes you've got to put your plaque outside otherwise you know Fire brigade. Oh no! Back to the back to the station, boys. Not here. <laughs> Stolen or yeah. So these have been uh, placed into seacoal, um, as you can see. And, yes. Uh, you know that 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 w the idea is to preserve them um, for the item for as long as possible to make so that you can you know research and and study it. Um, and um, with hard copy materials, you know it's the. Um, low acid um, enclosures but also the temperature you have to make sure you've got the right temperature and really keep it away from light as well so there's um, there's a there are certain kind of preventative measures you need to take to enable something for, to last for as long as possible but in the right conditions um, you know a really good quality piece of paper will last for sort of 500 years or so mm. um, film probably 200 years um, but um, yeah one of the problems that we have now is with digital uh, records because everything is most things are created digitally now preserving digital records is a lot harder than preserving yes. um uh, hard copy material um just because of the pace of digital obsolescence uh, the speed yeah. at which technology changes i mean everybody's got floppy disks at home with stuff on them that they can no longer access because computers just don't have floppy disk yeah. drives anymore let alone the programs, you know, in their original form to be able to access them. Mm. So there's potentially a vast array of, of um, knowledge and information and evidence on this type of media that is just effectively lost. Um, so there's a there's a, a real concern that, uh, you know, in 500 years time, people may know more about the Victorians than they do about the early 20, you know, 21st century. Yeah, because so much material is on digital format that can't actually be accessed anymore. So, I mean, what I was, when I was re reading up about hats, I was looking at things, I was thinking about things like YouTube ads mm. that you only get on YouTube. And yes. presumably they don't sort of generally fall under your your ambit so we we would collect them if they were if we were able to get hold of them and they were sent to us so we what we generally had to do is have a natural filter of awards bodies so we have um for example british arrows uh, which is uh, an awards body for commercials in the uk um, and that includes online uh, advertising of online commercials um, and we receive their entries and winners uh, every year so it's kind of a natural filter for us in terms of the really quite good stuff that's been entered into uh, into awards and has won awards and that sort of thing as well. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of a natural filter. And if they come via that, then then we will we will collect them. Yeah. Um, you know, we 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 could be fifty times the size uh, that we are and try and collect absolutely everything, but it's, uh, it's it, it would be virtually impossible. impossible yeah. So um, so yeah, it's uh, it, we we do have kind of have this kind of natural filter of awards bodies and that sort of thing and but we do rely on being sent material so well i i can honestly say if if you ever get um sent a copy of the chap on youtube who asks you what are your experience and skills really worth please don't, don't, don't. <laughs> so uh, we just got out uh, so one of uh, the guard books from one of our agency collections fcb footcomb building 
We got out our Turkish delights. I was going to say, did you do this just for me? Just for you. Full Turkish delights. Eastern promise. Can I just say to Foot Colin and Belding, I owe you nothing. <laughs> I owe you no money. Um, so, I was three when yeah, that campaign I was going to say, out. 1979, so, uh, and it was placed in, as you can see, and this is why it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting in terms of the, the material that we get, because it not only shows you the ad, but it also shows you where it was placed, um, uh, Women's Press, um, uh, 1979. And, uh, you know, you can inf you can look at that and see the kind of Ooh. target audience uh, that they had in mind for the for the campaign. It took me a while to notice that there's a sort of very reflection. Uh, yeah. Picture yeah. In, in the actual Turkish. Like, uh, uh, is photography verboten in a room like this? Uh, no, no, no. You can. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, this no, make, that makes do, a, yeah. a lovely little. Uh, so the um, the reflection in there is probably of the commercial, which was out at the time as well. Um, mm. And you can see part of the so it kind of cross-media campaigns, yeah. uh, it's kind of tying the two in, really. Um, and just uh, some quick examples of uh, the Heinz archive. Yeah. Some of the 3D items from the collection. Mr. A Aristocrat Tomato Head, essentially. Aristocrat Tomato <laughs> yeah. Head. Um, he was a very early... It, looks, uh, it does look like a conversation with Lord Snooty, Winston yes. Churchill... And a tomato. Yeah, yeah, effectively. Um, and he was a very 1920s um, very 19... kind of mascot, yeah. effectively. But he's, he's, he's a bit scary, to be honest. He is, <laughs> so he is. I, I don't know how well he'd do today, but uh, yeah, you know, used in press advertising, but also, you know, as, as a kind of mascot. And then right through to sort of 2018, and we've got Ed Sheeran's yes. Heinz bottle here. So Ed Sheeran uh, has a tattoo of a um, Heinz bottle, I believe. Uh, on his arm, and so Heinz did a bottle with all of his tattoos on, and he also signed them uh, for a limited edition. My goodness um, me. So, uh, yes, it's... It's uh, his favourite son. There you go. So we have one of those in the collection. So, you know, it's not just, you know, real, really vintage material. It's, it's kind of more modern stuff that we need to collect. We have to capture the present mm. as well. But going back to a bit more vintage, this Heinz, uh, the Heinz collection also has an amazing uh, label library. Uh, going back to the 1920s, um, and here you can see uh, some of the um, labels. So, for example, this is Heinz Oven Baked Beans in 1927. But one of the most interesting things about it is that the branding hasn't really changed that much. No, it I hasn't. mean, you can you can tell immediately what it the is, shape, and, and then, yeah, based on today's branding, you know. So. Um, it's it's really interesting. If it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, indeed. So, um, you know, and and the, the 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 kind of huge brand recognition that they built up from you know the the long period of time they've been in business. They've they, this has been really successful, and you can immediately tell a Heinz product um, from the from the the kind of branding you, and you the labelling. So, um, you... but using the label library, you can just see how how it, how little it's changed yeah. since since you know the nineteen twenties. There, for example. As, as a as, as someone who worked many th many thousands of years ago in in the, the graphic design <laughs> slash printing industry, I'm just I'm wondering what the exact color mix is, the Pantone yeah, number, if you like, yeah. for the for the Heinz sort of teal blue, and yeah. uh, and I also my my eyes caught the 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 very uh, it says pure food products on the label, but the very uh, the pork. That's all we're going to say. <laughs> that's all we're going to say about it. It's pork. Don't ask. Yeah, there's there are some questionable <laughs> products uh, sometimes in the in the uh, the further you go back in time. It's, yes, uh, it, the, I suppose the food standards authorities uh, um, etc. probably uh, weren't as heavy-handed or didn't exist. But, well, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, it's uh, yeah, they're, they're, it's it's quite interesting. And, and you know, in terms of the history of, of food and, and and that sort of thing as well, yeah. it's it's really interesting. And pe people put a lot of obviously 
to, you know, you get hired to do a campaign. You do, you know, like yeah. I, I, on John's profile on the website, he says his favorite, one of his favorite ads is the Hamlet one, yes. which everyone remembers. Yes, from, yeah. From the music to yeah. the, you know, yeah. Gregor Fisher and the, the yes. Baldy Man. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you could not do it today. Yeah. You really could. Exactly. No, exactly. And that's why it's a reflection of society, and you can see the development of society through advertising. It's, it's very interesting. The Advertising Standards Authority. Um, is the body um, that's in charge of kind of policing advertising and making sure um, that it falls in line with what's expected by today's society and Mm -hmm. that it's truthful, honest and decent. Um, So this is Archive 2. This is where we have most of our trade journals, consumer magazines, where we um, can, you know, you can actually look at advertising uh, alongside the copy and actually in the original kind of publications we, we don't try to duplicate the british library or anything um, we do keep we do keep um several publications to to be able to see those and then also in here we have independent deposits so small collections that have come from people who used to work in the industry mm. have collect kept their yeah, own kind personal. of private personal collections of material that they worked on and that sort of thing as well yeah, yeah so, the smash alien yes. looking down upon us. So, uh, it's sadly not an original. It's not an original. It's not, the, 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 yeah. Oh, now I'm, so I'm the originals sh- are at the Media Museum in Bradford, I believe. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, just a. a it was created by one of my colleagues, um, actually, and uh, yeah, it's it's two woks uh, stuck it, yeah. together with uh, yeah. I'm not sure what the top the, the top bit is. Chess pieces, I think, inside some funnels or something like that for the eyes. So it's, uh, yeah. it's getting slightly blue Peter now. So yeah, it's like <laughs> Tracy Island. Make your own. Yeah. You can't get it. Make your own smash alien. <laughs> Go and get some woks, yeah. chess pieces, and funnels. Yeah, definitely. And we'll t- we'll t- we'll talk you through. Yeah, it. perhaps we should produce a, a kind of pamphlet on how yes. to create it and uh, yeah, put that out. Um, so one of the other other things that we do is when the, when a business gets into trouble goes into administration um, via the business archives council there's a kind of emergency response team there um, that responds to businesses that have, that have gone into administration and effectively if they've got lots of heritage the business archives council tries to find a place for that heritage to go if the mm-hmm. business is, is essentially going to be uh, going to go under and in 2018 toys r us uh, my daughter went into administration and um, we managed to get along to their head office and uh, collect all of their catalogs um, and all of their um, kind of marketing material that they held at the head office including a jeffrey the giraffe costume he's brand new out. jeffrey the giraffe costume he, he um, certainly is Peeking out the bottom, my goodness me. So that's all preserved. It's very difficult to, for me to work on this collection, especially the catalogues, because it's all of the toys I ever wanted as yeah. a child and, and we never got. Um, Have so you worn the costume? I haven't worn the costume. Okay, dark so, archive. Yeah, this is Archive 3. This is where we preserve most of our film and tape uh, material. And we don't preserve a huge amount of film material on the premises. We we don't have refrigerated storage, so quite often we, we subcontract to the East Anglian Film Archive for any kind of client collections that have a large amount of film in them. However, uh, this is the Heinz film collection, part of the Heinz archive, um, and it's all of the, the, the kind of film material that the company accumulated 
um, and it goes from the 1920s right through to about the 1990s. Um, so there's some really early footage of people working in Heinz factory. The first Heinz factory was in Halston um, in, in London. And, um, I thought you were going to say up the road. No, like, no, really? No, <laughs> Halsden, not Halston. Oh, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and there's footage of of uh, essentially women standing next to tables um, and putting individual olives into jars um, using these oh, really kind of long, goodness. kind of almost chopstick looking things and placing them into the jars just by hand. And then as you kind of work through the collection in, in date, you can see kind of the mechanisation of things, um, the kind of all the processes... Um, and the machinery kind of coming in and making it easier and to produce, you know, really large amounts of product. In the first year, actually, um, for um, Heinz in the, in the UK, the Halsden factory actually actually produced 10,000 tonnes of, of, of product. And that's, that's, you know, all by hand, effectively. Um, so a really, um, it's a really an amazing success story. Just at the beginning, um, before it came over to the UK, it was it was in America and, and kind of all Heinz products were imported. Um, but Henry Heinz actually came over originally um, in 1886 to Fortnum and Mason, and uh, he had all of his he had all of his various products um, uh, to hand. And uh, the owners of Fortnum and Mason tried the products and said that they'd take a, take the lot, right. um, and they were so impressed by it. And that kind of took off from there, and then imports came over um, from um, America and were, there was kind of sales offices um, that, would, that would sell those to, to retailers. But the, uh, the first factory was set up in, in Harlston in the 1920s. And um, yeah, as I say, it produced 10,000 tonnes of product in its first year. Wow. Um, but through, through the collection, the, the, um, the, video, the film collection, you can see the development of the, of the company. Um, not only that, there's a lot of the advertising as well. Um, but the kind of corporate social history um, that's there as a, being a food producer, a lot of Heinz factories were bombed during the war. So there's lots of bomb damage oh, wow. footage um, in the collection. And the Heinz company donated three Spitfires to the RAF during the war. And you can see footage of them going out on missions. Right. There's also a lot of kind of paperwork around those um, in the in the Heinz archive as well. So you can there's a real great story there in terms of um, the the war effort, etc., and and the company, and then again going further on through the kind of mechanisation of everything, um, of all of the processes, you can see how the factories are are being built and developed, and um, also the the people that work at Heinz, you can see them there working, but also at play as well. There's um, the Heinz Fifty Seven Club was a social club that Heinz had, and uh, you can see um, films of the staff putting on plays, doing sports days, all of those sorts of things. So uh, it's a really, really kind of fascinating uh, collection in that respect. Well, I, I, I've been so spellbound that I've just realised what I've forgotten to do, which is to say, for those who can't see what I'm seeing, which is very hard in an audio <laughs> medium, on my left, floor-to-ceiling racks of archive boxes, IPA. Yep, IPA is the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising. Not India Pale Ale, as you might <laughs> be thinking. And it's what are they called? Roller rack storage. Roller with, racking, yes. Sort of with the the, the the moving shells, the great big tri handles that you spin round, and and in the Heinz archive, tins and tins of various sizes of films going back, as Alistair says, many many years. And, and uh, I'm intrigued by the notion of a Heinz company play. I bet that I bet they were a bit saucy. <laughs> so. 
we just uh, moved along uh, the roller racking a bit. Some of the um, Hovis uh, material. Hovis were an incredible uh, advertiser. They started off in 1886 as Smith's Patent Process Germ Flower. Really uh, snappy title. I can't imagine why they changed it. <laughs> um, and uh, it was uh, Richard Stoney Smith uh, was the creator of Hovis Flower. Um, and he, he believed that wheat germ was really nutritionally valuable. Um, he didn't actually have any evidence, but he just had a real belief um, that it was. And wheat germ was usually removed from flour mm. because it made it go off um, more quickly. Um, and uh, so brown bread was kind of seen as a food for the poor because it, it kind of went off very quickly and went mouldy. So uh, what he did was he worked out a method of removing the wheat germ from flour, lightly heating it, and then returning it back to the flour. Um, and uh, that meant that it, it lasted longer. So um, he created his Smith's Patent Process germ flour, which then enabled brown bread to become a, a real staple, um, so much so that Queen Victoria um, was a, a Hovis customer so to speak so they they got a royal warrant from from queen victoria um but uh being known as smith's patent process germ flour wasn't exactly great for the brand um it obviously it's too long um and it's also as a food product has the word germ in it which uh, isn't (laughs) isn't very good people were just starting to realize what germs did to the body um and uh so they quickly had to come up with a, a new brand name um so in 1890 they launched the competition to the public uh, to to find a new brand name to, for looking for someone to come up with uh, with something for them and the competition was won by a student called Herbert Grime and uh, he came up with the Latin phrase hominus vis which means strength of man and he put the two together to make hovis um, and that's why you sometimes see a little tilde over the o uh, to denote the joining of the phrase ah. um, so um, that's where the hovis name came from It was quite lucky that they ended up with Hovis because um, second place in the competition was Yum Yum. Um, And I don't don't think we'd still be eating uh, Yum Yum today. Uh, Possibly not. But um, uh, yeah, so it's uh, it started off um, and they were so, so pleased with the the Hovis brand name. And it became so popular that uh, even though um, Herbert Grime had never worked for the company, um, when he died, they actually paid his widow a pension um because of the 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 success of of the hovis brand name Um, but a lot of that success came from the advertising so immediately as soon as they they got the brand name they were advertising on tram sides posters painted signs um all of the kind of mediums that were available to them they wanted to put hovis in front of absolutely everybody um and so they have a really kind of prestigious um kind of advertising history um but in more recent times probably the most um well known commercial is the hovis bike ride the baker's boy uh going up the hill in gold uh, gold's hill in shaftesbury um in dorset to, uh, to the strings of Dvorak. yeah Dvorak, yeah, Dvorak, yeah. Uh, um, New World Symphony Number no. Nine, and um, it, it, it's so memorable. It was voted the best commercial of all time in the early two thousands, um, sort of mid two thousand, I think two thousand six seven, um, and it's still really well remembered. Quite recently, Hovis uh, remastered the ad and relaunched it, um, probably about three years ago, I think, right. um, just before uh, just before the pandemic, just before COVID. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was hugely, hugely successful at the time. Um, and, um, the, the kind of nostalgia of it was the, the real kind yeah. of 
the real hook, the kind of um, linking the brand to British history. Um, and they've successfully done that so so many several times um, mm. uh, with the brand, um, but the the commercial itself was quite special. Do you know who it was directed by? Go on. It was directed by Ridley Scott. I knew you were going to do that. I don't, I don't know why I hedged. I don't know why I hedged. I was going to say Ridley Scott. So um, Ridley and Tony Scott started off in, in advertising before they went into feature films, and they had a production company that still exists today called Ridley Scott Associates. Um, and we actually hold the Ridley Scott Associates archive here as well. Um, all of the grey canisters that you can see there um, hold um, uh, commercials that they did um, throughout their kind of advertising career before they moved on to um, feature films. And I don't know if you can just see in the middle um, on the kind of third row, fourth row down there. It has caught my eye. Alien tests. Yes. <laughs> so it's effectively a test reel for the film Alien. Um, it shows uh, Ridley Scott uh, walking around with a torch, um, standing over these kind of glowing eggs, just setting the scene, uh, setting one of the shots. There's no sound to it, but it's absolutely amazing. It's, oh, my uh, God. For, for any, uh, you know, alien fan, it's, uh, it's a really uh, amazing piece of film history. Um, and we also have a copy of The Duelists, which was his uh, yes. first feature film. But it's uh, through that collection, it's really amazing to see how a director develops through um, advertising to then go on to, to, to feature films. And some, a lot of the uh, kind of skills and techniques that he uh, developed in advertising, you know, came, came come through in his kind of uh, films as well. So it's, uh, it's a really, really kind of fascinating, uh, fascinating collection to hold. Well, every day's a school day, as they say. And what I've learned just by standing here <laughs> in front of these roller racks with these drawers and drawers of movies is basically how Brown Bread came about, how the Hovis got its name, and that, that here in Raveningham, in Norfolk, you hold possibly... I don't, don't want to be hyperbolic and say the holy grail of uh, sci-fi nerdery, but it's got to be top ten. <laughs> Wow. No, definitely. Incredible. And you can see how the industry kind of, you know, the ad industry kind of crosses over with so many different uh, creative uh, worlds. You, you know, there are many actors, artists, directors who effectively cut their teeth in advertising, mm. you know, and, and, and the, the reason is that, it, you know, it, it was a way of earning money. And, um, you know, you earn, they earn the money in advertising either at the start, beginning or, you know, middle of their career, mm. whenever, if they, you know, it's, it's a good way to, to earn money. And, um, you know, especially at the start of your career, if you're going into a creative industry, um, you may well find that, you know, people, actors, directors, artists have worked in advertising and created some really amazing, amazing things and amazing commercials, amazing ads, and then gone on to do even more wonderful, wonderful things. There's a kind of crossing point, especially in the creative world for, for advertising, because because advertising is this kind of combination of science, creativity and, and kind of a creative spark that is required to create really good advertising. So there's there's all these kind of crossovers with with really amazing creatives that have been involved in the industry at some point. <laughs> Okay, so, more roller racks. Yeah, more roller racks. This is Archive 4. Um, this is where we have um, most of our client collections. So Heinz, Hovis uh, and Vimto just down here. Butlins is, is uh, further through in Archive 6. 
This is also where we hold some of our agency um, archives or agency collections. This is JWT. I, I mentioned the agency earlier, now known as Wonderman Thompson. But it's a, a really um, fascinating collection in terms of um, the administrative material, the background material that it holds. Um, it goes right back to the 1920s in terms of content. And there's 192 different brands represented from the yeah. 1920s right through to uh, 1970s in real real detail, but it goes through to the early 2000s. And um, it's all of the kind of market research, consumer research, all of the um, background material that went into the creation of, of the ads. Um, and we also have a guard book collection for them. So you can research how the ads were created um, in the um, client account files that we have here and then go and see the final finished ads in, in the guard book collection, um, which is where the ads the, the finished proofs are, are kind of contained. But the, the client account file um, section, which has all of this uh, kind of background material in it, is, is kind of gold dust to, to, for academics who are really looking to understand how ads were created and the, the thought process and the creative process behind the actual creation of the ads. And they were doing things like, you know, you can look in the JWT archive and find um, information on, you know, they're asking housewives during the war what soap powder they were buying, where they were buying it from, how much they were paying and that sort of thing, what they thought of their client's brand, yeah. you know, all of the And they went into real detail and really got to know their clients and understand the consumer, uh, all of the consumers for the, the potential consumers for the product and then worked that into how the um, the brand could uh, change its products or create products um, and and, uh, and and really help them to develop as, as a business and as, as a company and develop their products as well as creating this amazing advertising for them that, that really was effective because the, the the kind of science the research would tell them that it was going to be you know effective and uh, and because they really understood the consumers and, and they'd done all this market research but subsequently they they created a, a vast archive of um, of this this client these client account files this material um, which we've managed to preserve and uh, we've had it's been catalogued and repackaged and it is available for research so there's some really amazing brands in there um, and just just an example of uh, some of the client account files uh, that we have here um, this is um, the notes of Jeremy Bullmore, who was uh, the agony uncle of the, the advertising industry. He worked in the industry for 70, nearly 70 years, I think, a really long, long mm. period of time. I think probably 60 years. And uh, he, um, he, he was at JWT and he was an executive at, at JWT in the 1960s. And... They were working with British bakeries at the time yeah. and uh, they'd discovered that there was a gap in the market for individually wrapped cakes. And these are Jeremy Bullmore's original notes on uh, the creation of a new brand called Mr. Kipling. And you can see here, who is Mr. K? Mm -hmm. We think that's a cakey voice. Mr. K emerges as a cake specialist, makes cakes, only cakes, understandably pleased with them and proud of them. Mm -hmm. And so he's talking about the, uh, obviously, Mr. Kipling campaigns yes. um, with uh, James Hayter as the, the, the kind of voiceover. Um, and uh, uh, 
it's it's just the genesis of, of a brand. And then a little bit further down, you can see possibly the first time that exceedingly good cakes is muted as a as a as a slow possible slogan. Oh my goodness me! Um, but these are the kind of the original notes that were put together for the presentation to to the brand. So it's not even um it's it, oh it's not me. you know it's not even a kind of a finished presentation these are these are the notes um and you know this is kind of 1967 um so really? uh, but the real kind of genesis of of mr kipling as a brand that still exists today i must um, say for, for in terms of preservation you were saying about how long paper can last but it it looks like it could have been written last week yeah yeah no no definitely definitely yeah and that, you know and that is you know if you if you preserve material in acid free um enclosures and limit the light and heat that, that can access it then then you know you you can preserve things for a very mm-hmm. long time and you know that's why that is um you know it's so important to preserve this stuff you know you, you might say well why don't you just scan it and then throw everything out but yeah it's, but... it's digital obsolescence is the problem you know if you if you could do that then you might consider it but um you know you've you've got formats that can barely last five years um, let alone 500 years exactly and uh, you know as i always say you know there's nothing better than holding the actual item in your hands and, mm. and kind of smelling or feeling the history uh, right there <laughs> so uh, another example of jeremy bullmore's files um is uh here um and it's this uh is his letter to all producers at jwt yes and i've seen this I saw that fairly recently because mm. he, he passed away fairly recently, didn't he? He did, Jeremy, yeah, sadly. He, um, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, actually, yeah, yeah. sadly. And it was a great loss to the industry as a whole because he, he really was um, absolutely fantastic. He had such a vast bank of experience that it, people yeah. could draw on and he, he was a really, really well thought of um, in the industry. And and this is a letter so, recommending get one, the aforementioned... Ridley Scott. It is, yes. Yeah. So um, this is in 1965, so well before Ridley Scott Good has grief. set up uh, RSA or even thought about directing feature films. I have recently met and talked with this young director and would very much like to bring him to your attention. And a bit further down, he seems to me a very intelligent and no-nonsense director who is genuinely interested in making commercials, not just for the loot. Not for which, the loot. Uh, <laughs> which I think is a, a really fascinating uh, insight. And um, we, we actually interviewed Jeremy uh, about this, uh, this letter. And um, he said that he hadn't remembered that he'd, uh, he'd forgotten that he'd, that he'd written the letter, actually. Um, and uh, he'd never taken any, uh, uh, you know, any praise for the success of Ridley Scott since then. But he would, <laughs> but he would then. So he, um, you know, he... He was very. He had a, an amazingly dry wit, and uh, he, he was uh, an amazing, amazing person. But to have been able to foresee the uh, the potential in, in Ridley Scott at such an early time, I mean, at this time, it, you can see in the letter, Ridley Scott, um, I think, um, was di- um, working on Z cars. Here you can see, uh, as a director, he worked on Z cars and also made several commercials for Peter Sims. He also seems to design many sets for Keith Hewitt commercials. So um, I think Ridley originally um, started in Royal College of Art, I think, and then went into set design and then realised he could earn a lot more money directing than, yeah. than kind of building sets. And uh, then kind of went from there, really. Wow. Um, but absolutely amazing. The, the first commercial that Ridley did, I think, was um, Birdseye, Captain Birdseye. Right. The very first Captain Birdseye, got, he got taken off to the Bahamas or flown off to the Bahamas to shoot... Uh, or Jamaica or somewhere like that to shoot um, 
you know, Captain Birdseye on a ship with all these children running around. And, and, uh, it's tough the, at the it, top, yeah. eh? <laughs> But, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of uh, the level of spend on, on ads at that time was, was a lot kind of more, really, than it kind of is today. Uh, so a bit further down, we've got the Ogilvy collection. Uh, Ogilvy, again, is an ad agency, still exists today, um, but it's got our earliest uh, guard book collection. So these are guard books. Uh, they're essentially books that hold the proofs of all the ads before they kind of go out, and then they, they preserve mm. all the ads that have been created for a particular brand um, by an agency. So an agency would keep press advertising in, in the guard book collection or their, their guard books. And uh, this is our earliest collection the uh, agency was Mather and Crowther at the time. So it was the, ver the first iteration of Ogilvy and Mather. Yeah. Um, but it goes back uh, to the early 1900s. Um, there's HP Source ads uh, showing men using HP Source in the trenches during World <laughs> War One. Um, so a really kind of fascinating collection. But the most interesting bit about it arguably is the their wartime guard books yeah. so they did all the advertising or much of the press advertising for the government um during the war so all of the ministries and the and, and all of the that were trying to communicate uh, and inform the public about what they needed to do came through Mather and Crowther um so you can see here for example this is a guard book for war loans savings and national savings and you can see the types of ads that they were creating to try and get people to invest in national savings to help the war effort. Yes. Um, so um, they started off with um, various ads showing the uh, victories and things that had been won through, you know, the um, things that they had been able to, um, or the weapons or the, the vehicles and things mm -hmm. that they'd been able to create and, and use in the war effort because people had invested in national savings. Um, so, for example... Um, you can see here, victory arithmetic. Mm -hmm. So one national savings certificate, if you buy one of those, that equals 135 rifle cartridges. Yes. Ten national savings uh, certificates, that gets you one rifle. 100 national savings certificates, two trench mortars. And if you buy 500, that gets four machine guns. Well, so there uh, you are. You know, telling you exactly what was going to be done with your money and how that was going to help help the war effort. Um, but then eventually um, they decided to introduce a little whimsical character to try and help people to understand the that they really bug. should invest. And here's the squander bug. Yeah. So he was like a devil like character who would kind of sit on your shoulder and try and get you to waste your money. Um, for example, here, more wages this week. You can buy lots of awful trash. And so the squander bug would try and get you to waste that money and not invest in the national savings. So the idea was to don't listen to the squander bug, beat the squander bug um, and invest in national savings. And the squander bug himself kind of developed over time. Um, they gave him a little bit of a comb over, effectively started to make him look more and more uh, like <laughs> Hitler. And then they just stuck swastikas on him just so that everybody could see he was working for the Nazis. Uh, you... Uh, should not listen to him and you should beat the squander bug and invest in national savings to help the war effort and uh, to win the war. But in, you know, in terms of social history, a really fascinating yeah. insight into how the government was communicating with the public, informing them, but also trying to get them to, to work uh, together, work with the government and uh, invest in national savings and, and help the war effort and effectively win the war. 
and uh, you know the, the 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 ads go right through from you know the well 1940 through to around 44 45 so a kind of complete um insight into all of the ads for the particular ministries and we've got 11 different books and there's all sorts of other things um like blackout um what's doing a blackout uh, ration books how to grow your own vegetables and you know um potato there's a couple of characters called potato pete and pop carrot who would uh, help people to right. understand why okay. they should be eating carrots and growing their own potatoes and that sort of thing but a really uh, really fascinating insight and i mean you could go through every newspaper and kind of draw out all of these but they're right here for you in the guard book <laughs> Um, so some of the 3D uh, items in the collections. Yes. Um, so we've got a lot of the uh, kind of Butlins 3D material here. We don't just hold kind of 2D items. Um, a lot of the client collections have 3D objects in them uh, as well. So, for example, here you can see this bronze bust of uh, Billy Butlin. But probably the most interesting piece of social history in the Butlins archive, or the Butlins 3D collection anyway, is the baby crying in chalet sign there's a just there is a giant you know <laughs> shame of any parent that this is now illuminated <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a light up sign and effectively uh you could go to butlins in the early days and uh you could put your baby to bed in this your chalet and then you could go off out for your night's entertainment and a nurse would cycle in and out of the chalets listening out for babies crying and if she heard one she'd contact the entertainment venue and uh, it would come up baby crying in chalet camp row and number and if it was your chalet you'd have to do the walk of shame back yes put your baby back to sleep um but just a really fascinating insight into social history there and and you know that that kind of development um and uh yeah it's um it's a, a really interesting piece in terms of the whole collection it's incre an incredible model here in front of us. Wave Hotel and Apartments. Yeah, that's at Bogner. It was designed uh, to look like the uh, a kind of cruise ship, really. It um, does have a very, yeah. very cruise ship, especially yeah. the back, very yeah. cruise ship feel to yeah. it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, and just uh, kind of the full model of the hotel, so you can kind of show how, the, how the, it was kind of created and designed. But, uh, yeah, really a reasonably modern modern piece. You've got, um, you've got the, the social cycle there. Yes. Um, I think it's a 1930s example 1936 was when billy butlin set up his first camp but uh yeah you could sit side by side with uh, your significant other and cycle around the camp only the person on the right hand side could uh, could drive it though so you had to uh -huh. go wherever they wanted to go but you could both pedal so um yeah just yes. a nice way of, of kind of getting around getting around the camps um billy butlin was an incredible innovator he was almost he was sort of the richard branson of his time he was the first person to bring dodgems to the uk um in amusement arcades that he had before he really? set up the camps um he was one of the first people to use a monorail who was the first person to use a monorail um in in this country in terms it went round uh, the edge of of a few of his camps um he also had heated swimming pools rotating bars um, and swimming pools with glass sides so that you could see, uh, you kind of sit and see your family kind of swimming in, in, yes. in the pool um, as you were having your cup of tea. Um, he had menageries of animals which would travel around the uh, travel around the camps, the, the effectively travelling zoos, and he, he would court the press. He was very... Uh, 
very keen to that that any news was good news. And um, one one year, a, a story got out that one of the lions uh, in his travelling menagerie of animals had, had escaped uh, whilst being transported um, between camps. Um, it hadn't escaped, and Billy Butlin knew it hadn't escaped, but he got the press to photograph him uh, walking around the hedgerows um, of, of the country um, wearing um, a safari hat and a massive net, yeah. looking, <laughs> holding a massive net, looking for this, looking for this, this fictitious lion that hadn't escaped. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he was a really amazing person um, in terms of um, his innovation and um, uh, moving the business forward. He was very early a doctor of... TV commercials. So TV commercials started in 1955. Um, Billy Butler invested a huge amount of money early on in, in, in TV advertising to, to get the message out there. It was, you know, a week's pay for a week's holiday. Um, and it was really, really kind of all inclusive. Mm-hmm. At that time, you could go to Butlin's, you would pay your money, you would get your Butlin's badge, you would go in and all of your entertainments and everything were, were free. So yeah. you would just experience the, the, the camp. Yeah. So a real kind of innovator and, and pioneer, really. Wow. Just here we've got some biscuit moulds. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> uh, which are part of the McVitie's um, archive. So you can see here, this is a mould for... The Hobnob. Yeah, so... In... Now, I, I wouldn't have... Do you know what? I, I looked at that and I thought it was the, the, the foil-covered ones, because it looks yeah, like... Yeah. It's basically... If, if You know, you, you can't see what I see. Obviously, again, uh, it's, it's, it's a... Well, gold, almost golden cylinder with the imprint of right. several thousand, presumably. Oh, well, no, hundred. That's not good, crazy. <laughs> hundred hobnobs and a giant cog that obviously turns yeah. it through the mould. And so this would roll down the, yeah. uh, the conveyor belt, effectively moulding the dough as it came down into the into the famous shape of the hobnob that you the know hobnob. today. And um, yeah, it may well be that you've eaten a, a hobnob biscuit if you're if you're partial from to them that came mold. from this very mould. Ah. Um, so, but they're yeah, amazing have parts of the of the of the collection. <laughs> okay, this is archive five, uh, which what? is where we have most of our large uh, larger format material. So, for example, posters. Um, just over here, we've got some of our earliest uh, posters that we hold in the collections. These are from the early 1900s. Yeah. Uh, this one is for Jacob's Biscuits and is 1910. These are lithographic posters, and lithography um, was invented in the late 1790s um, by a, a gentleman called Alois Senefelder, and it really um, enabled, um, you know, quicker printing of uh, of material and posters mm. such as this and the build-up of the different colors creates a really vibrant vibrant image it really and, does and i mean this is over 100 years old but it's, it's still um, i mean bright. the biscuits on it are good enough to eat uh, look good enough to eat and um but you can see the process as well because you can see this this image took 13 different plates of color yes to, to build up um, so um, really, uh, really fascinating in terms of the techniques, but also the the vintage advertising itself for, for different products. Edwards Harleen, Colson hats there, looking beautiful, very beautiful uh, of their time, but still very vibrant and yeah. beautiful. And it's a shame that you, they don't really use this as a method today because, you know, I would I would look at these on the street because yeah, they're they beautiful, are absolutely, aren't they? They're diverting. They really are. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a picture of a... A, a, almost a tray, a window collection of biscuits. Each one, beautifully, you know, you've got the cream cracker. You know, <laughs> somebody sat and painted painstakingly a cream cracker. Um, you know, the Osborne biscuit. Um, 
And uh, wow, thin arrowroot. And they, they do, you're quite right, they look good enough to eat. We're yeah. in this room full of, of well, like, well, I suppose you could call them almost chests, yeah, yeah, drawers, plans chests. A um, bit of a, a change from the, the, the roller racking and the high archive shelving. And, and it looks like, you know, you've, you've just pull out some blueprints, but there's decades, decades of, 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 of fantastic, beautiful um, images. So um, a couple of the other posters that uh, you might recognise, the Pregnant Man poster is probably one of the ah. most, most iconic advertising images um, of all time. It's um, uh, effectively um, for uh, the, the Family Planning Association um, and uh, or the Public Health Authority at the time. And um, it effectively is trying to advertise contraception so um it shows uh, obviously the image of a man with a pregnant belly and it says would you be more careful if it was you that got pregnant and at the time this was a really shocking image uh, to see um 1969 um was created by uh, Kramer Sarchi um Charles Sarchi yes uh and um uh, yeah it was it was one of the first kind of shock effect um, ads to to really put across a public information message, and and at the time it was it was really innovative, and because of the shock value, it really drove its message home, and it's become one of the most um, iconic images in in the advertising industry. Uh, another one there is uh, again for Kramer Sarchi uh, for the Health Education Council, and it's yes. about letting flies land on your 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 meal. I shan't read it out, but it, it makes you want to keep plenty of fly spots handy. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Um, effectively, the uh, the text, most of the text was taken by uh, Charles Sarchi, I believe, from a biology book. And then all he did was add the last bit, which says, and then when they've finished eating, it's your turn. So um, yeah. he just added that to it. And uh, that just really, drew, again, drove home the message in that kind of shock value, shock effect. You've got here yes. several examples of... Uh, you always slightly feel sorry for these people who sort of... Beautiful work has been kind of coloured by association. These They're, they're Benton and Hedges ads. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, 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 most of them have got a warning about Middle Tar, which sounds like a place in Kent. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just yeah. driving down to Middle Tar, darling. Beautiful images with the government health warning yeah. along the bottom. Yeah, so um, one of the things we're asked to talk about reasonably regularly is, is tobacco advertising because it doesn't exist today. You can't really, you can't advertise tobacco um, in the UK. And, um, you know, you can really see a creative and um, uh, a kind of creative versus regulations journey with, yeah. with tobacco advertising. So, for example, you can start off with these here, 1930s for Craven A. For your throat's sake, smoke Craven A. <laughs> uh, I value my throat, that's why I smoke Craven A, made specifically to prevent sore throats. Yes. Uh, I can smoke as many Craven A as I like, when I like, without any ill effects, Craven A. Um, mm. So there's effectively no regulation. Uh, that You know, it's... Um, it's saying that it's all healthy to do it. You've got sports tars, you've got actors. You can see them smoking, you know, the cigarette on the in the ad, um, and uh, you know it's just uh, really, um, you know, terrible, really, yes. <laughs> by by today's standards. Um, but at the time, you 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 know, you were allowed to do that, and um, they did do it, and they they um, kind of gave out these what they what they said were facts about uh, cigarettes and. Um, 
and, and smoking and, uh, you know, try to convince you that Craven A were actually a, a kind of mild cigarette that, that wouldn't damage your health in any way and uh, were in fact good for you. Um, then in 1962, the Royal College of Surgeons brings out its report on smoking and lung cancer and, um, and it effectively says, you know, it's, it's very linked. And the government responds by banning the advertising of cigarettes on TV in 1964. Um, so all TV commercials for cigarettes uh, are stopped at, at that point. Um, you could still advertise in the press and in uh, via poster. So you can see here how we go from um, these ads um, in the 1930s, press ads kind of pretty much saying anything they want, right through uh, to now. This is uh, the early 1970s, ads for Benson and Hedges. So they're not showing anyone smoking. They're not actually showing a cigarette. Um, but what they are doing is using the pack, the, the image of the pack, and they're putting them in mm. quite aspirational situations. Yes. So you've got the pack on a desert island, someone obviously living a lovely life, um, on a on a nice desert island somewhere, par uh, desert paradise island. Um, then you've got a sports car, so you've got the pack next to the gear stick of a yeah. quite a nice sports car at the time. And then you've got the international tra businessman, international traveller off to uh, the Winter Olympics in, in Canada. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, the pack is just uh, situated as the, the kind of centre of the uh, as as the main part of the image. So you effectively saying if you want to be successful. If you want to have a nice life, you need to smoke Benson and Hedges. Or all these people who are successful and have a nice life, nice life, smoke Benson and Hedges. And you've got yeah, you've got the, the very uh, yeah. obviously open wallet. Yes, uh, yes, growing no, exactly. cash. Yes, and yeah. you know, pa cards that are passports yeah. to the life yeah. of uh, take your own gold to Montreal. And the, the pack is gold, and it's kind of focusing on the on the pack being mm. uh, the, the the main part. Um, so although it's not showing anybody smoking or anything, it is implying that to be successful or to have a nice life, you need to smoke Benson Hedges or linking Benson Hedges to that kind of life. Um, what it does have is they've introduced a small warning at the bottom and it yes. says every packet carries a government health warning. It doesn't say what the health warning is and doesn't, uh, doesn't dis try to dissuade you from smoking. Um, but, you know, it might be a reason to buy the pack in the first place just to, so you can see what the health warning is. <laughs> I'm um, curious now. But, but yeah, it, is, it is starting to introduce the fact that there is some kind of health issue um, and, they, they, you know, they're, they're kind of letting you know, but they're not telling you what it is and, mm -hmm. you know, keeping a bit of mystery about it. Um, and then from the early 1970s, the uh, Advertising Standards Authority, um, which became involved when the government started limiting um, advertising, said, you know, we will help the agencies to um, regulate their advertising and to introduce more responsible advertising. Um, and so the ASA really starts to regulate things um, at this point in, um, in the early it, the ASA began in 1962, um, but um, it starts to regulate the, the kind of advertising and mediate between the government and the, the industry um, so that the, uh, the industry was producing more supposedly responsible yeah. advertising. So you can see the effect of increasing regulations here. And then it moves on to the late 19, mid, mid 1970s with um, this surreal campaign. So they're not saying you're going to have a good life. They're not showing anybody smoking. Um, they're not doing anything like that. But what they are doing is still focusing on the pack 
um, in in really strange situations this time. Not aspirational, but situations that are strange, but also a little bit clever. See so here, you can see the uh, budgerigar um, shadow in the cage, and uh, when you actually look at the actual cage, it's got the got the pack in it. And this one, which is really creatively good, it's uh, the paint uh, paint tube. And so uh, there are paint tubes with this oil, yeah. uh, oil colours being squirted out of various, uh, and it's all in French. All the all the, all the, the labels on the, the 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 paint are in French. Yeah, um, and, and it's there's one of them that's got the 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 Benton and Hedges label on it in the same style as all the. That's the it, and the um, the uh, the the others all have paint coming out of them, and the Benton Hedges one actually has a cigarette coming out yeah. of it, a curly cigarette. So um, in really kind of this kind of creative, creative development to try and get around the, the, all the regulations that were coming in. Um, this is one of my favorites. It's the light coming through the open hotel door um, and the light creating is creating the shape of the packet. Mm. Um, they, this was actually shot in a hotel and they had to put a big mirror here because people kept coming in and out of yes. the rooms. So this is all of these are before digital manipulation, and so they had to actually set the scene. They had to build the props. You know, they had to do all of this physically um, to create it. Um, so yeah, they had to put a big mirror. And I, I was doing a tour a few years ago, and the, a lady on the tour she said, "Oh my God!" She said, "My father um, took this photograph in this hotel, oh, wow. and I was in this room doing my homework." <laughs> <laughs> so you can see a closed door, and she was behind that door doing her homework. The story uh, um, here. But Incredible. a really amazing creativity, and they were getting photographers, you know, like you know the, the, the likes of David Bailey, really good photographers to take these images. Mm -hmm. And this one is obviously the mouse trap, yeah, um, outside the mouse hole. It's, um, it's very using the neat. I'm, I'm impressed by the, the mouse's uh, handiwork. Yes, he's very done well, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, alongside this change in creativity, the idea with the surreal campaign was to get people to stand in front of it long enough trying to figure out what was going yeah. on, that the kind of brand message would seep in. But also because it's a bit clever, you're more likely, likely to talk with other people about it. Did you, oh, can you see what's going on there? Did you yeah. see that? Did you see that ad the other day? What's that? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, so, um, you know, that was the idea with the surreal. But also because it was so surreal, it got round most of the regulations because the regulations mm. hadn't really thought of this yet. You know, they, they were trying to stop the aspirational kind of situations where you were saying, you know, if you, if you wanted to have a good life, then you needed to smoke Benson Hedges. These were so surreal that it just got round all of those regulations, so it was allowed. Um, but what it is in, doing is starting to introduce a slightly um, harsher, a more prominent uh, warning. Every packet carries a government health warning, becomes think about the health risks before smoking, becomes cigarettes can seriously damage mm. your health. Um, so they're immediately actually telling you on the ad that cigarettes are damage, you know, damaging for, for your health, um, which is kind of a big step up in, in kind of the things that advertisers had to do. Um, and then from there, you move to the 1980s um, with uh, these ads. Do you know which brand silk this cut. is? For Silk Cut. It's yeah, effectively big. a dark purple piece of silk with a, with a cut in it. Uh, Saatchi and Saatchi Advertising Agency, uh, Paul Arden, art director, um, and so they're not showing a pack. They're not showing a cigarette, not showing anybody smoking. They're not even, you know, having, don't have any smoking paraphernalia or anything on it. It's literally the piece of silk that is the colour of the band that you find around the silk cut. Mm. Uh, you used to find around the silk cut packages. Yes. And it's got a it's, it's a piece of silk with a cut in it. And then what they did was they developed the creative idea 
um, through lots of different ideas in how you could cut some silk that there was that colour. So you move go from here to through the Can Can Dancing Scissors uh, with yes. their silk skirts. So they're kicking their legs it's... in the air, which are the, the sharp pieces of the scissors, which will eventually cut the silk skirts. But we're now at Smoking yeah, Hills. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you've got, you, you, on the one hand, you really admire the creativity and the genius yeah. to, to sort of get around, as you were saying, get around the regulations, yeah, yeah. but for something, you know... So, effectively, the journey is that uh, you, you, you can see the regulations come in and you can see the change, but the actual regulations lead to better creativity because Indeed. they have to get around this kind of regulation. So mm. it goes from just stating specific things that they think are facts or not <laughs> um, through to these more kind of creative ideas that give the viewer, uh, you know, give the idea that the viewer actually has a bit of intelligence and can work things out. And, uh, you know, it just leads to, to, to better creativity um, in the advertising. And so it's a real interesting insight into how the creativity gets around the regulations. The regulations get improved, so the creativity yeah. has to get better. Um, and so that actually leads to better advertising in the end. Um, but uh, you then also have um, the stark example of, you know, you end up with smoking kills on the, on the ad. And it's quite a large proportion of the ad as well. Cigarettes can seriously damage your health. Um, but one of the reasons that creatives could get away with increasingly surreal ideas was because they had to put this warning on the poster so as soon as you saw the warning you knew exactly uh, yeah it tips it, you exactly off, it? what it was it was a tobacco ad or it's a cigarette ad you just have to work out which brand it is from, from the <laughs> ad so it's uh you know it was really it's a really kind of uh amazing kind of cooperation between um you know the regulations trying to limit this but the creatives getting around the regulations which then subsequently leads to better advertising so you know it's really really fascinating to see it's the development incredible. thank you so that's uh, thank that's, you very that's much it. Alistair. That's, just that's a, fascinating a short stuff. tour on and you know obviously can't get everything out no but, I, uh, oh, you know you've, you've just absolutely some of, the, some of the highlights of the collections of well fantastic and and what you've shown us has been absolutely amazing make makes you think as we were saying it teaches you something especially about brown bread yeah and uh, <laughs> and where nerds can find um the uh, the test cut of alien thank you ever so much <laughs> Alistair. it's been a no pleasure problem. John Gordon Saker, director of the History of Advertising Trust. Thank you so much for talking to Eastern Promise today. If the professional life of John Gordon Saker could be summed up as an advertisement, how would it go? What would it say? Oh, crikey. Batted that one out of left field, didn't I? Yeah, where did that come from? <laughs> um, well, it's certainly been, um, I'd say, a roller coaster ride, eclectic roller coaster ride. <laughs> An unusual roller coaster ride, but certainly a roller coaster ride in, term, in terms of the different types of things that I've done. So, just give, give, give us an, a, an example of the, the journey that brought you to, to, to Raveningham, which, is, which um, is, is a really remote location, peaceful, quiet, but it's beautiful countryside, but nonetheless remote. Well, I get told off because I, I describe it as a barn in a field in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then the archivists go, yes, but it is a, you know, a thermostatically controlled and environmentally friendly <laughs> <laughs> archive. Um, so I always have to add that rider. But yeah, we are in a field in the middle of nowhere, which is bizarre for the largest advertising archive in the world. Um, but my story started off, I always wanted to be an actor. And my dad said, no, get a proper job. So I did. I joined Midland Bank 
in the 70s. Worked around Norwich, uh, worked in Beckles, which of course is just now up the road. So I sort of feel I've come back full circle. Um, and then got moved totally inexplicably to um, the video unit down in Surrey. And after three years of that, when they tried to move me up to Sheffield, I left the bank and had a career in video and events and the web and communications and conference and incentive travel. And it took me to some interesting, interesting places and some, a tour of Britain or a tour of the East and the, and the Southeast in ter terms of locations. But I guess that the highlights were working for World Productions, which of course now does Line of Duty. And at the time we were doing Balakis wow. Angel and Cardiac Arrest and This Life. And John Heyman and Chris Blackwell, who set it up, and Tony Garnett sort of basically took a punt on some bloke who did something in corporate video. They didn't really know what it was, but it might pay the overhead while they were setting up the broadcast division. And that's how it happened. I just, in the, I just tend to have been in the right place at well, the it, right it, time. It's funny. We were looking at the, the, the letter from Jeremy Bullmore to uh, saying... This young bloke called Ridley Scott, you may, may not have heard of him. So, you know, again, it's uh, this, this building seems to be about, right, you know, a lot of people right being in the right place at the right, at the right yeah, time. The right time. And the WPP connection, I ran their brand communication agency for two and a half years. So, again, you know, I sort of come full circle. And that how I got the job was, you know, totally um, informal as well. I knew Richard, my predecessor, through networking groups in Norwich. Mm. And he said, oh, he was now running something called Hat. I said, what is it? Um, and I thought, because of my background, I thought, oh, blimey, you know, I, I at least need to go and visit. So I came and visited. Um, Alistair took me on the same tour you've been on, and my jaw was just dropping at every turn in every archive, you know, yeah. at, at the stuff that we've, that we've got here. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. I just, just said, said goodbye, thanks, very, really interesting, and if we can do anything together, that would be great. And then six months later, he phones me up and says, oh, I'm thinking of retiring. Do you know anybody who might be interested? And of course, the, my, both hands shot up. I leapt out of my chair and, um, yeah, got the job after, after some stiff competition and some, um, some hefty interviewing. Golly. What does it mean to be in charge of something that has the suffix largest in the world? <laughs> you know, the largest X in the world. I mean, that's... What a day in the office, you know, I'm just going to the largest of its kind on this planet. So what, is it, what does that mean? Um, well, I think, the, uh, I think the history, <laughs> which is, you know, a bit of a giveaway in the title, is probably the thing that I get most bowled over about. That. I mean, in just today, you know, we've discovered, we always thought that the first ad was back in 1650, yeah, something. Eve was just going through some boxes this morning and she found this one that was that was earlier I mean it's hard to imagine that we'd ever find an earlier one um, but I think it's just the I mean it's not the weight of it because in the greater scheme of things you know as an archive we're very niche we're only going to appeal to you know the advertising industry and brands and history students so it's yeah, it's 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 nice to have the tagline, but um, you know, as a charity, we're an educational charity. We're not saving children's lives. You, you know, we're not housing the homeless. We're not dealing with bereaved children. 
so it's it's difficult as a charity to appeal to a, a you know a broad selection of donors so we've got a narrow market to, to focus on and that is the brands and the agencies sometimes on this podcast you're taking something from east east of england from norfolk suffolk cambridgeshire and essex and you're trying to introduce it to the world and with this it kind of feels like almost in a way the reverse there's something very much global here that you kind of t- trying to tell the people of our region, you do know this is here, don't you? You do know that this fantastic, I mean, jaw-dropping, as you say, jaw-dropping resource is right on our doorsteps and we're so lucky to have it. And then you look at something like Brandland and it's, it's kind of almost obvious that you're here in a way. So, I mean, does that, does the, that East of Englandness? That Norwich and Norfolkness of, of brands and branding feature a lot. Is that a happy accident? I think it's a happy accident. I mean, I, you know, I think um, sort of my I'm a Norfolk and Norwich boy and I, you know, everything I do, whether it's this or the film festival or Norwich bid or visit Norwich, it's all Norwich centric. And, you know, I'm a huge passionate fan about Norfolk and Norwich and want to spread the word. And I'll do that at any opportunity so promoting and celebrating uh, the advertising industry which is what we do here it is sort of just luck that we happen to be in Norfolk because this guy set it up who you know lived in Beckles we could be anywhere um, and, and actually being in Norfolk is a bit of a disadvantage because um, nobody knows about us and not even people in Norwich know <laughs> know about us because we are in a barn in the field in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I would love us, and, and Alistair and the team feel the same, we, we'd love to have sort of like um, uh, not a high street presence, but a presence where we have a shop window where people can actually see what we do, where we become the archive in a barn in a field in the middle of nowhere. But we have a, a presence either as part of a touring exhibition or a static exhibition in, you know, places around the country. And then we can engage more with the agencies that are pretty much all based in London, although there's some some impressive regional ones, and brands that are, of course, you know, spread all over the country. And, you know, and and that's just England and Wales and Scotland and without the rest of the world. But Brandland is just a happy coincidence and the fact that we've got uh, you know that we staged an exhibition with 70 local brands Mm. is amazing and we really were just scratching the surface as sort of a pilot exhibition to see what was possible and I don't know what it is about um, about Norwich Robert Jones will will say that you know we're all a bit weird and wacky and wonderful in in Norfolk and that's and that's the attraction You, you know we don't do things that the usual normal way we we sort of have a bit of a a twist on things and I well I like that and you know I think we could uh, we could fill the archive with Norfolk brands yeah um, and we'd have no space left yeah. uh, so so that's where I'm starting as a you know a passionate Norfolk person if we can get half a dozen a dozen 20 local brands then I can retire a happy man but you know still going after the biggies as well like the Heinz and Butlins and Playdist and, and Hovis the plans you have for the asset. How do you sweat the assets, to use the cliche? How do you make use uh, of the assets you, you, you hold here and, 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 and make, I don't want to say make a living off them, but at least, you know, make them, make them pay their way? In well, it's all, it's, I mean, it's all fairly new, although Alistair would say we've been talking about this for years. <laughs> um, it's just difficult to get things done because we, where, we are where we are. But we've got over £10 million 
we think. I don't know who's counted them. Alistair certainly hasn't. Uh, we've got 10 million items, you know, and a lot of them are just sitting there doing nothing. For the clients that we work with, like Heinz and Butlins and, and Playdis, we, you know, we do work closely with them to exploit the assets on their behalf. So, you know, for exhibitions and publicity and, and seminars and, and whatever they're organising, we'll work with them to make that work. Um, but the rest of it is just sort of sitting there and, and not seen. We're not a museum, so we don't get um, visitor football, footfall. Um, and so finding other ways of diversifying our revenue is, is important. So we've got Ad Memoir, which is this dementia app for, 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 yes. for patients, which um, is used in the Norwich hospitals and the James Paget. It's in a couple of care homes, and we're just about to launch it launch a campaign to get it into primary hospitals around the around the country um you know and that's the persuasion the persuading from our point of view is to, to persuade the advertising industry that they can actually impact on mm. social challenges and dementia is one of the, the largest social challenges that we that we well the world faces but you know this country faces so if we can do our bit to inspire advertising agencies to fund uh, an app like Ad Memoir, then, you know, that's a, a good thing. Um, and, you know, if it'll, you know, make a contribution towards our overhead for us to employ more people to run that app and that service, then, again, that's that's a, a great thing. So how do you get together with Alistair and the team and, and go about sort of discussing how... <laughs> For the, for the listeners, he's uh, chuckling and making slightly bit of the sign of the cross at Alistair, which, which Alistair thankfully did not react to or turned to dust. Um, but, um, you know, when you, 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 you think, how do you develop new ideas about access to the collection? I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, I, just thinking myself about some of the YouTube channels that I, I watch, um, which are usually men of my vintage looking at the kind of, bringing out their examples of the toys. Hey, look, I found a Kenner TIE fighter from 1980 that's not gone completely yellow. It's fantastic, folks. And, you know, and you, and you, I can sort of see, I don't know what, you wouldn't necessarily derive any income from that, but you sort of being on a YouTube channel presenting, look at this, folks, and, 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 and you know, sharing that that way. What kind of thing, conversation do you have like that? Well, Alistair, um, even though he uh, he runs an archive, which on the face of it you think is a bit deadly, um, he's actually the person who comes up with all the best ideas. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, float his boat too much. But it is true. I mean, I think Ad Memoir was pretty much his baby. And, he, you know, he works on it and develops it and comes up with the ideas for it. I think my role, yeah, I've got all of the financial stuff and the, the, the staff stuff and the um, all the other stuff that goes with being a, an executive director. But I think my role is to is to pick the best ideas and to try and get out there and flog them and develop the place. And, you know, what, Ad, Ad Memoir is a fantastic idea. But if you think how many hospitals there are, how many care homes there are, yeah. somebody's got to get out and talk to all of those people. There's only 12 of us and 11 of them work in the archive. <laughs> yeah. So it's, 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 a, it's a matter of resource because we are a charity on a limited budget. We can't just hire five business development people and, you know, put them in the different regions. It's, it's not possible unless we can find someone who's prepared to, to fund it. So it is a, a difficult balancing act, you know, keeping 
keeping the brands and the agencies happy, finding more agencies to, mm. you know, to donate and to, and to back us, um, you know, to find sponsors, which we've never really done before, to apply for grant funds that, you know, all charities are, you know, are after and we're competing with all of them, you know, for the same pots of, of money. So I think it's the what's holding us back is the limited resource and the number of people that we've got. Loads of ideas, and they come from all parts of of, um, of, the, of the you know the personnel all the time. We yeah. have you know because they're not allowed to drink or eat in the archive. We get together oh, for tea yes. and coffee breaks, and and that really is you know a really good creative platform for for ideas. Yeah. We'd love to be a dairy, as we talked informally before. We'd love to make cheese, but um, sadly we haven't got the space yeah. <laughs> space to make cheese now. <laughs> I mentioned this earlier before we started talking. I'm intrigued because your profile on the the, the hat website not yeah, only gonna, talks I'm, about your yeah, your favourite advert. I'm going to have to change that because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting uh, to have to talk about it. Because <laughs> we actually you 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 were sort of a, a fruitful source of conversation because you you say your favourite advert has been the Hamlet, and we talked again about you know very clever, very funny, um, you know made in many ways. Gregor Fisher as an actor. And he's up there now, the baldy man. You point, you've pointed him out on your on your the wall behind your desk. You've also you also you also talk about your your three screenplays. Now I'm I'm, I'm intrigued. What can you tell us about your three screenplays? <laughs> well, they, uh, I mean, I, it goes back to sort of my um, script writing days when I was you know writing for corporate videos, and, and when I was at World Productions, we had um, we sort of had a little niche of. Uh, a, doing corporate drama so health and safety so you know death on the underground and you know children not playing on escalators and you know a lot of health and safety things ghost stories about you know kids being killed on the farms and things so i remember those i was terrified <laughs> by the, the, the kid who drowned in slurry and the one who got crushed by a gate and there's everyone's perennial favorite the kite flying by a pylon <laughs> yeah yeah, well, I was responsible for a lot of those, <laughs> and so uh, I, I sort of got involved in the, in the, the writing side of that. So I've always had a bit of a daydreamy, vivid, you know, imagination as a child. I was, always, you know, always doing the things, that, you know. Yeah, but that'll never happen, John. You know, just yeah, it's not going to happen. You, you just don't do. Join the bank. Do something sensible. Don't do that. Don't do that. And. and I just have these, had these ideas in my mind, and sort of three particularly. And um, when I found myself um, building a house <laughs> up in Leicestershire in my garden um, and, you know, doing my bit to support my partner who was an opera singer, get her career off the ground and look after my daughter, our daughter, um, I had a bit of time on my hands. So I literally thought, right, this is the, this is the time to dig these three scrappy pieces of paper out of my briefcase that I've been carrying around for the last 20 years and do something about it. Literally sat down and in nine months wrote three screenplays. And then I wrote, sat back and I thought, well, that's, that's nice. That was an interesting experience. That was fun. And then I thought, oh, I suppose I better, <laughs> better do something with them. And how does, um, uh, you know, an unpublished writer with no screenwriting experience actually get these ideas off the ground? when you you know you're busy doing other things so i did stupid things i got on a plane flew to la with these three ideas in my briefcase <laughs> knocked on production companies doors and they all said yeah yeah actually you need to get yourself an agent get back to england and find yourself an agent and then they can send them to us sanitary lesson number one so just so naive and then i just sort of forgot about them 
And while at a, a film festival, Norwich Film Festival launch about four years ago, bumped into a director whose work we were screening, talked to her about one of them. And she said, that sounds really interesting. Can I do it? Can I take it on? So I said, yes, absolutely. So one of them is, it's funny. Oh, I think it's funny. It's, it's a cast full of, you know, think of any female comedic British actor and there's a role for them. So Jennifer Saunders, Dawn French, Celia Imrie, you know, the same sort of level of people. Vanessa Redgrave, you know, Liz Smith, if she's still been alive. And um, it's all about a celebrity chef who goes to war with a WI. Do you know what? That's got British comedy smash written all over it. I, I, I know. It, it's, and, it's Norf- and it's based in Norfolk. Even and, better. you know, there's a loose relationship to a, a female owner, chef of a, a football club. A loose. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm lost. So what, the, it, one's a comedy, the other One's two... a comedy, the other two, uh, one is, um, I mean, totally spookily and no relation to, to what I do now, but it's, um, it's an advertising executive in Chicago who gets into, um, gets into the lifestyle of his PA and uh, there's, uh, you know, he gets into a dodgy world in seedy salsa bars in the back streets of Chicago and uh, it's his downfall, um, so that's one of them. Quite gritty and dark. And the other one is um, football in a northern town, sort of like young footballers with their girlfriends and the, the, the company they keep in a sort of a, a really run-down football club that has seen better days. And it's all about their friendships and their lifestyle and what happens when the big team comes to town to play them in the cup and the fallout from, from all of that. So all three completely different. Um, and just, you know, the ramblings of my warped mind, basically. I'm, I'm tempted to ask, <laughs> since you're a Canaries fan, you haven't based the football one on a certain club no. who, 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 who's, thought, whose nickname thought, is, it involves agricultural implements. I thought that was a... Oh, no, well, that would have just been... T- I'd have, no, I could never do that. Um, and I couldn't base it on Norwich because um, I'd be handed out to the city. So. No, I didn't think for a minute you'd do that. Anyway... John Gordon Saker, I have had an absolutely amazing time. What a mind-blowing tour of uh, discovery and uh, education, which is appropriate for charity. If Eastern Promise can assist you in any way, um, more than happy, you know, we'll just just let me know and we'll 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 be, we'll be here. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alistair Moy, for your time as well. The fantastic tour. I'm really looking forward to sharing this. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. It's been huge, but random. <laughs> Excellent. That's, that's, that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> I do huge, but random. My huge thanks to John and Alistair for that revelatory look around their extensive archive. To find out more about the Trust go to hatads, that's H-A-T-A-D-S dot where you can also find the aforementioned profiles of the team. <laughs>